You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. old-timey crimey i'm christy i'm scott and i'm amber and we are here with your weekly dose of historical true crime but first before we dig into this pretty incredible case here uh remember always we have our patreon where you can come and get some bonus content at the five dollar level you get our weekly old tiny crimeys where one of us tells the other two a story that they haven't heard this week, I told Scott and Amber about a terrible murder that ended in what I suspect was maybe a wife engineering a scheme to do something that would make the murder become uncovered. There you go. I was as vague as possible. So, um, and also you get our monthly extra, extra bonus episodes this week, this, this month, and we're hoping to continue this. We have video. That's right. Us, our faces, you can see us talking and laughing. Scott and I jinxed each other like three times in a row. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But we each told a story from the 60s. So that was very interesting. And they were all very different. Although Amber's and I, uh, both of ours took place in Texas because there was something going on in Texas in the 60s. <laughs> Apparently. There really was. There really everybody was. was. Everybody was killing everybody. There's something going on in Texas all the time. So yes, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey is where you can find that. Come over and uh, get a taste of what you can get at the, the $5 level and maybe see if you want to stick around. So we would really enjoy that. And it also, just so you know where that money goes, it helps us with both ho hosting costs. And in addition to that, because we do really try to dig into the archives, it helps us access some of the archives that cost a little bit of money, which honestly I'm a little mad about because I... I don't understand with copyright law being what it is. If the great Gatsby just entered the public domain, why are Boston globe newspapers from the 1800s still able to be behind a paywall? Huh? Huh? Somebody oh, explain I that. No, So many newspapers I can't have access to. Yes. I, yes. I get pissed off if even they go, Oh, we see you have your ad blocker on. We're not going <laughs> to let you see anything. And then I go, okay, I guess I'll turn my ad blocker off. And all of a sudden I'm assaulted with advertisements for games called cut wars. So, yeah, it's definitely something that you can do to help us out, not only with the normal cost, but with the extra costs that come from the kind of research that we do here. So, that said, speaking of research, we researched the heck out of Jesse Harding Pomeroy, Pom shit, Pomeroy America's youngest serial killer. And as for whether I'd classify him as a serial killer, eh, He's definitely a serial something. Uh, so, he was born November 29th, 1859. Uh, it was a small family. He only had one brother who was two years older than him. His mother's name was Ruth Ann. Did anybody get his father's name? Let me look here. Thomas. 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 Okay. It, was, it wasn't in a lot of places because he didn't figure very strongly in uh, Jesse Pomeroy's life. Yes, I have it here. Thomas J. Pomeroy. He was born 1835, uh, passed away 1898, and he was a veteran of the Civil War. Yes, yes. I think he also worked in some naval shipyards and also in a, maybe a meat kind of 
packing variety, something like that role. Also, a fun fact about Thomas, his mother's name was Ruth as well. Interesting. Yeah, I have actually a little bit about his, uh, Thomas's mother and father in a minute here. Uh, they... Jesse was born in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Uh, Charlestown is a neighborhood of Boston. And you didn't say his it right. dad, you got to say, Baston. I, I feel like that's mean, and they could just come right back at us with a Pittsburgh accent. <laughs> Why Yins want to do that? <laughs> yeah. So his, yeah, like his, his dad was a veteran, but he, he left the family probably around 1871 or so when Jesse was 11 uh, ish. Before that, there was some abuse, which, of course, everybody back then just saw as punishment. There were frequent floggings, which would factor into Jesse Pomeroy's future. And this was a, a family trend, really, the separations of marriages. So Thomas Pomeroy's father, parents had divorced as well. Uh, it seemed like it was just out and out acknowledged, which is rare, that it was the husband's fault and he had abused the wife and treated her terribly. So that's kind of incredibly rare. At the time, 10,000 out of 14 million marriages ended in divorce. So that is 0.07% if I did the math right, which I think I did. How the times have changed. Mm -hmm. Right? So, yeah, it seems like Pomeroy's father left right around or shortly before the time that the Reign of Terror started. And that would be Pomeroy's Reign of Terror, Jesse Pomeroy's. Uh, there was basically a, a bad flogging incident wherein Jesse Pomeroy's father flogged him so badly that when Ruth Ann came home and found out what happened, she chased Thomas Pomeroy out with a knife. Good job, Ruth. Deserved. Hooray! Deserved. And it, it, he had, it's not like the, the misbehavior started then. He'd misbehaved all his life, but that seemed to be, you know, he, he had incidences where he would run away or where he'd be truant. And I think it was the truant this time, the truancy that he was being punished for, but it was just Ruth had had enough. And now Jesse Pomeroy, he had sort of an oddness to his appearance. One of his eyes was milky, like he had a cataract. His mother, uh, according to some, she blamed it on childhood vaccines, but several well, other... Well, damn, right? The more yeah. things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. And there were several other explanations that were offered up, like maybe it was an actual cataract, you know, or a corneal scar or an ulcerated eye from an illness or infection. I have experienced both the, the cornea issues and ulceration issues, and not, 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 none of that's fun. It's, it's all horrifying, so I can say that. He also had sort of a big head, and uh, his jaw was described as heavy, so I think it was kind of like a bulky jaw, and always looked like he was scowling, and had really been made fun of for his looks all of his life. He looks like he a catcher's mitt with a face. <laughs> He was so hard to look at. It's said that even his father, when he was around, didn't like to look at him. That is some rough shit right there. Well, his dad so, was also a giant dick. So there's, there's also that. that. Yeah. yeah there's, there's that. So Pomeroy got into plenty of trouble in school. He liked to scare the little kids with mean faces, which considering how much people made fun of him, I, I wouldn't have done that if I were him. It seems like you're just drawing more attention to it. Um, so he also liked to throw firecrackers at kids sometimes. 
And while he wasn't a terrible student, he also wasn't really bright. He fell kind of right on the line of average. One teacher said he was, quote, peculiar, intractable, not bad, but difficult to understand, end quote. And I would like to argue with her about the not bad. <laughs> we need to talk about about the meaning of words, because that that word is definitely not bad is not a phrase I would apply, uh, apply to Jesse Pomeroy at any point in time, including when he uh, decided he was going to hit one of those points on the triangle and do the animal torture thing. Uh, there was something vague reference that happened with a neighbor's kitten, but no real specifics. But we do get kind of some specifics about two canaries his, his mother had gotten when he was younger. And one day she came home to find their heads popped off. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, you didn't see that part? <laughs> I know. I'm just, yeah. I'm just making conversation here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he also had a sort of a fascination with torture that was already coming out even in playtime when, when he and the neighbor boys played what they called scouts and Indians, which cowboys and Indians, basically. Uh, this was from Harold Schechter, quote, What distinguished Jesse from the others was his preference for villainous roles. Rather, while the rest of the boys pretended to be Western heroes, Jesse liked to imagine he was the infamous 18th century renegade, Simon Dirty. That might be Gertie. I used a text thingy that uh, extracted the text. Leading Shawnee Indians on the warpath against white settlers. What seemed especially appealing to him was all, quote, the... All the fun he'd have with the prisoners of war, the running of the gauntlet, and the different modes of putting captives to death, skinning them alive, roasting them at the stake, slicing off bits of their flesh, and making them eat their own bodies. Now, to be clear, this was all, like, imaginary play, but still he was making boys imagine that he was slicing off bits of their flesh and making them eat it. So, not, that's not fun, playtime, no. Did anyone notice his heart on as he talked about it? Uh, not that they mentioned, but it, it did come up as part of the descriptions of his later crimes, that there was some, uh, some, some moaning. This would be the most fucking disturbing OnlyFans page ever. Oh boy. Yeah. In October, 1871, he had pneumonia. He had some delirium. It seems like he came pretty close to death a couple of times. And now, Attacks on boys started sometime around that period. I saw one that referenced an attack in July 1871, but most seem to start with December 1871. Mm -hmm. And there's a pattern forming here with uh, the assailant luring boys off to somewhere quiet, somewhere secluded. Uh, he would promise them, hey, you know, I'll give you a nickel if you run this errand with me. Or let's go see a parade. All the soldiers are marching. Let's go see the soldiers. Then when he got them alone, he would strip them, tie them up, beat them, sometimes with his fists, sometimes with his belt. And sometimes he would introduce a knife into this and really, really hurt these children he was 11 to 13 during this period, and the boys he assaulted were very young. Some of them, they were usually between 5 and 10, but there were a couple of, like, 3 to 4-year-olds in here, which is pretty, I mean, it doesn't matter. 3, 5, 10, whatever, all horrifying, but still. There's, there's something slightly more horrifying, we have to admit, because the younger you go, the less likely they are to defend themselves. It's, to defend themselves, to be able to actually identify him. Right. Yeah. 
Right. So, I mean, I get it. Yes, it's horrible. 10, 12, 15, 20, 80. 80. Fuck, it's horrible. But to, you know, if you're, if it's like this 15-year-old kid doing this shit, and, and then, you know, a 25-year-old man who slings around cargo crates for a living, yeah, then you kind of got to go, well, maybe the dude was asking for it, you know? But, and there's like... Oh, yeah, go ahead. It, 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 no, I was just going to say, it's exactly like you say, that the younger they are, the more vulnerable they are. Right, right. And he was looking for that. <laughs> That's what he wanted, was that they, they would be easily led away, easily hurt, and less likely to identify him, although I don't think that was huge. That last one wasn't huge in his factoring, because, again, not, not particularly bright boy. No. Uh, after, after the assaults, he would leave them out in the elements or wherever he'd left them to be found by passersby, while he would vanish. So articles start popping up in the papers about what they called the boy torturer. And word starts getting around. First of all, one of the Harold Schechter points out in, in his novel fiend, not novel. It's a straight out nonfiction book, but he points out that one of the first descriptions that ended up going into the papers, and it's not really known exactly where it came from was of a man with, dark red hair and a dark red pointed beard. And he points out, he's like, basically a Mephistopheles. Like these people didn't realize that they were saying the devil did it. Yeah. I mean, but they're, they're little kids. So like they, they might've imagined that it was the devil attacking them really. Oh, true. And the descriptions from some of them being so young would probably be harder to form into anything coherent but that kind of misinformation just led to them overlooking the actual culprit for a while. So it, interestingly, right about the time it started getting into the papers, Ruth Pomeroy picked up her boys and moved them to another neighborhood. It seems like the timing was, she might've realized, even though she, she would go on to constantly say, proclaim his innocence. I think she might've realized yeah. deep down. So there's definitely in the the year or so, almost a year that these attacks are happening, there's definitely an escalation both in uh, how quickly he does it again after a, an attack. So he it, at first it was like maybe a month in between, but by the time September rolled around, it was a week passing, a couple of days passing. So we definitely see that escalation that we see in many other uh, crimes, as well as the escalation in the viciousness of the crimes. Now, Schechter points out that youth-on-youth youth crime was not super rare, as much as we think it might be. Uh, he talks about an incident in that same area, in that same time period, of a seven-year-old boy luring a little five-year-old girl away and trying to cut off her arm. Basically, had to try to get her arm into a piece of machinery that would cut it. When that failed... She got away. He chased her and shot her in the stomach, and she died the next day. Good. A seven-year-old boy did this. I'm I'm speechless. I know it's 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 fucking horrifying. And Why even a few a days, seven-year-old have a gun. His parents had it. Just great. I'm sure there weren't like a whole bunch of gun safes or any sort of like you know gun safety literature being handed out. They just had guns lying around everywhere. Yeah, true. So, 
Uh, and then another incident in that same time period where a 16-year-old accidentally shot a four-year-old in the head. So this was not, it was not super rare. And I would like to state also that Harold Schechter in this book, the introduction to it was basically like uh, if we wrote a book, what the introduction should be. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. This is going to be good. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't have it. I can pull it up real quick, but oh. it was basically our entire ethos of the good old days weren't always so good. Nice. Like, I'm, I'm sitting there listening to it, and I'm like, you know, that's us. That's exactly what we are doing here. So it was absolutely really weird to hear that, and because I, I was listening to it as an audio book. Uh, so, okay, here's the beginning. The longing for a bygone age, for a time when life was slower, sweeter, simpler, is such a basic human impulse that it often blinds us to the fact that the good old days were a lot worse than we imagine. Hell yeah. That's the first line in the book, you guys. <laughs> maybe, he's like, a, maybe he's a long-time listener. Maybe. I don't know. I think this was written before that. I don't know when it was written, but yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how you know, youth on youth violence wasn't so uh, unknown and, you know, uh, affronted by the nonstop barrage of media violence, we pined for a return to a more civilized time. Conveniently forgetting that, a hundred years ago, public hangings were a popular form of family entertainment and that turn-of-the-century penny papers routinely ran illustrated front-page stories about axe murderers, sex killings, child torture, and other ghastly crimes. I, I think, I think uh, Amber, can I borrow a, can I borrow Carter? I'd like to take her to a public execution. <laughs> That's what they did. This was written in 2012. So uh, he definitely preceded us and we, we owe him a debt actually. <laughs> Not that we took our ethos from that. It just happened to be that we feel the same way. Yeah. So, so by September 1872, as I said, these attacks were coming every few, you know, every week or so or every few days. Six to eight of them have occurred since the beginning in December the previous year. And so the police are really start to, they're starting to intensify their hunt for this monster. And one boy who was attacked gave them a description that was really useful. He had said that the torturer's eye was like a milky marble, which is like the cloudy white ones. And so now they had a distinctive feature that they could look for. Ooh, let's find all the kids that have a milky eye. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, essentially, that's what they did. They did a school-to-school -school search and took one of the victims along. And, you know, they'd go from classroom to classroom and have all the kids, you know, look at this poor victim who now has... as classroom after classroom of students staring at him and knowing that he's been victimized, but it, his name and age and address were probably already in the paper. So oh, yeah. as they did back then, so it was probably already well known. And they did come to the classroom in which Pomeroy was, but uh, he kept his eyes cast down. So the boy couldn't see him. And then he did a weird thing, a dumb thing. And also weird. That very afternoon, after escaping detection, he stops by the police station. He goes in. He sees the same cop who had done the school search with the victim who he'd had tagging along. And he sees them and then he runs away. And so the cop's like, hmm, well, that was a little suspicious. 
I think that was Milky Eye Jesse. Yeah, I think it was. So he runs after the after Jesse Pomeroy, grabs him, brings him back. And then the victim who had been on the school search is like, oh, yeah, that's him. That's that's him. And they also brought in several other of the other victims. And they were like, yes, that is him. So it's pretty certain at this point. He is arrested and tossed into a cell. At first, he refused to talk. And he says they cursed and threatened him. Finally, he does break down. Uh, they, this is interesting because it comes up twice. So keep this phrase in mind. That if he doesn't confess, he'll go to jail for a hundred years. Hmm. All right. I just want to point out that the victim that, that did this, though, that, that identified him was five. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. That's very brave. And the yeah. stuff that was done to him, um, is it is it okay if I if I tell you what was done to Robert Gould? Go for Go it. Go ahead. So, um, he was persuaded to to accompany this stranger, and they went to the Hartford and Erie Railroad track where he was tied to a telephone pole, stripped, beaten, and cut. Uh, Pomeroy had placed the edge of the knife against the boy's throat when railroad workers had stumbled upon them and scared Pomeroy off, uh, which is why Robert was able to give the description of an eye like a white marble, which was pretty impressive. And I think he also got very lucky. Yeah. Had that one not been interrupted, it may have been the first murder. Yeah, because he was escalating to that point. And judging by the descriptions of the assaults up to that point, he was definitely working his way towards it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it was pretty brutal what happened to all of these children. Many of them had physical scars, uh, and uh, I'm sh- absolutely sure they had psychological scars that followed them forever because there was no psychological treatment, and they barely even knew what psychology was. No, like, I have three pages of details of what he did to these boys. Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty rough. Um, so he does break down and after seven or eight hours, he confesses. He's arraigned that very day. Uh, the five victims testify against him. His mother testifies that he's a good boy and it's impossible. He couldn't have done that. They ask Jesse and he says, I just couldn't help myself. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Like, like he yeah. got his hand caught in the cookie jar. Exactly. Yep. Now, a really amazing thing happened after the hearing uh, when Jesse Palmer was found guilty. The parents of some of his victims actually went over to Ruth Pomeroy and told them that they, you know, they were sympathetic to her plight. They felt bad for her. The parents of his victims. Fuck. Yeah, that's some compassion if I've ever seen it. So the sentence was handed down that day, and I will leave it to the William, William bleh, Wilmington Daily Commercial to, uh, article titled A Youthful Monster. Jesse Pomeroy, 14 years old, residing with his, his mother in South Boston, is under arrest for decoying boys of 5 to 10 years to out-of-the-way places, stripping them naked, gagging and tying them up, beating and otherwise maltreating them. In many cases, he cut small holes under his victim's eyes, disfiguring them for life, and inflicting on others painful cuts and stabs on various parts of the body. He confessed to the crime and was sentenced to the reform school at Westboro during his minority, which would be 
technically was supposed to be the next six years. I love that they leave out that he actually sexually assaulted all these boys. Yeah, they don't really talk about that. They don't even use the old timey term for sexual assault, which was he outraged them. They, they don't talk about that at all. Which we could probably be grateful for, for the simple fact that they also didn't have the policy of leaving underage victims' names out of the papers. Yeah, that's why I have all their names. Yeah, yeah. So they, they didn't leave them out of the paper. Like now, if, if you'll notice, when there's any sort of sexual assault involved, if the victim is a minor, they're not named. And there's essentially like journalistic rules for that. And I, I think even many times the police won't even tell the, the journalists the name of the victim. So they didn't have that back then. They just threw names around willy nilly. So it, it's probably a good thing that they were so uh, circumspect in a way, but also I certainly don't want to call it prudish because it's, it's, it's not that I don't even know exactly what the word is, honestly, because it's not like, it's not like sexual assault is a good thing, but no. Yeah, yeah, but it's like yeah, he was he was definitely like escalating to a sick sick degree. He was he was making them recite a uh, a profane version of the Lord's prayer on on his last victims. He was also biting off chunks of their flesh. Jesus Christ. This is this is like god damn. This is straight up satanic. Yeah, like the he he attacked a seven year old and took he bit the kid's cheek and took a chunk of flesh, and then he was he was trying to um to cut some other parts. I think this was the one he was trying to get to his eye, and the boy managed to roll over onto his stomach, and then Pomeroy took a chunk out of his ass, bit a chunk out of his ass. Yep. Like, that what? <laughs> I think I think we have to go with what the Boston Globe said. The last line of the article in the 1872 Boston Globe is generally concluded that the boy is mentally deficient. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> no shit, huh? There, Boston Globe. Sorry, Baston Globe. <laughs> I also found it interesting that the way that the Wilmington Daily Commercial pointed out that he uh, cut small holes under the eyes. The focus mm -hmm. on the eyes there seems significant considering the, the, how much he, how self-conscious he was about his own. And maybe he just, he wanted to make other people feel the way he did or something along those lines. But yeah, oh, I, I guess what I wanted to say earlier, I managed to kind of straighten my thoughts out on that. I, I feel that it's definitely not in the public's interest or it's any of the public's business to know minor victims' names. But as far as the actual nature of the assault, uh, you add sexual assault to the physical assaults that happened. The public needed to know how dangerous this child was. Well, because yeah, the, the only thing that would stop this assault, though, is when he came. Like, he was so sexually turned on assaulting these little boys that after he orgasmed, he would just leave. Yeah, and it seemed like he was having a, a just judging from the way it was described in Schechter's book, it seemed like he was having a harder and harder time getting there. And that's why the escalation, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's horrifying. Mm. So he was sentenced to the reform school at Westboro. And uh, here's the thing about these places. Okay. First of all, oddly enough, probation was 
kind of frequent, which is strange because a lot of them were like early prison, prison industri- industrial, industrial, um, I'm going to say that one more time and I'm actually going to say the words. <laughs> oh, early prison industrial complex, like the junior version. Um, My first so prison like- by Kenner. it seems like it would be in their best interest not that it's commendable or ethical in any way but it seems like it would be in their best interest to keep their inmates around for as long as possible to get as much work out of them as possible because one thing they were doing one reform school was saying that parents should quote send them to us at eight then maybe we can reform them in time oh my god you think he's (laughs) fucked up send them this way (laughs) Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, the routine here was that they got up at 5 a.m., had school until 7.30, a breakfast of bread and coffee uh, that they had until 8. Then they worked until noon with one 15-minute break, had a half an hour to eat, a half an hour to play, and then went back to work until 4.30 p.m. And then they had class until 5.30 dinner, play for another 45 minutes, and bed at 7.45. So it added up to about eight hours of work, three hours of school, and an hour and a half for play. I'm sure that these children, this is, it's just fucked. It's Yeah. What? <laughs> that says it, yeah. Like, this, Most is, this of- is fucking disturbing, because it's like, okay, what do you do with these kids? But a bunch of these kids didn't deserve this. Yeah, exactly. Because like some of them may have committed petty crimes, shoplifting, Most what have of you. Them. Most of them committed petty crimes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what I was saying, most committed petty crimes. Some were sent there by their parents for quote unquote stubbornness. Yep. And then you have Pomeroy. This is this is <laughs> like this is like one fucking step below the uh, the doctor who did the lobotomies lobotomizing like uh, I think the youngest patient he lobotomized was four years old because he was a daydreamer yeah God. yeah Jeez. so this is like one step below this I mean that is yeah, definitely and, the pinnacle and that poor kid could have been one of the most like influential writers you know what I mean but well, you yeah, stop that before it could be well let's yeah. face it let, let, let's face it Rose Kennedy Rose Kennedy was was lobotomized and mm-hmm. it was just because here's here's the thing with Rose Kennedy. Whenever whenever Rose Kennedy's mother was pregnant with her, the nurse didn't want to deliver the baby by herself, so she told Rose Kennedy's mother, "Keep your legs together until I can find a doctor." And because of this, there was some damage done to Rose Kennedy right before, you know, lack of oxygen, what have you. And because of that, she wasn't able to keep up. And it wasn't that she was rambunctious. It wasn't that she was she was out there. It's just that she was a little slow. And they were using fucking lobotomies for everything back then. Uh, oh, you, you've got depression. Uh, orbital lobotomy. Uh, oh, oh, g- dear God. You know, uh, you've uh, you've got a sinus headache. Orbital lobotomy. Oh, uh, stubbed your toe there. Give him an orbital lobotomy and a little bit of whiskey for me. It's, yeah, but this is just like, fuck, maybe if we start, start caring for people instead of trying to surgically or psychologically fix them in harsh ways, maybe things will end up being a little bit better, huh? 
Yeah, people really wanted a, a quick fix, it seemed like, for any sort of uh, mental illness or even not even mental illness. Somebody just not being exactly like everybody else. So right. even the tiny bit of nonconformity. But I have to say, every time you said orbital, orbital lobotomy, my head hurt just a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got this little headache. It started and then it started getting a little more and then a little more. And I was like, I hope he doesn't say it one more time because I might have to go take an aspirin. <laughs> you know what, though? Like, I'm very happy that they don't do that anymore because I feel like we all would have been in the lobotomy crowd. Oh, fuck yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck yeah. How dare you think of stories in your head, Christy? <laughs> Why? You're a witch. <laughs> do you know? Do you know? Amber dreams of nothing all day except not feeding children. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Pomeroy. At the time that he was sent to the reformatory, there was only one other student who was in there for assault, and it wasn't anywhere near Pomeroy's crime. It was. It was. Uh, I. I don't know exactly what he did. There were no specifics. I'm guessing he slapped a kid. That's it. Maybe maybe stabbed him just a little bit in, a, in an area that didn't bleed very much because it was seriously nowhere near the atrocities that Pomeroy had already committed. They probably just got in a fist fight at school. <laughs> probably, yeah. He stabbed him with a pencil out of spite. But Pomeroy managed to stay out of trouble in the reform school. It seemed like he knew that the key to getting out was behaving himself. And his most of his teachers and supervisors thought that he was a, a, a reliable kid, that he was a hard worker. He, he followed the rules. He was even given privileges like field trips. There was one incident where a teacher saw a snake. And so she ran and she grabbed Pomeroy and was like, can you come kill this snake for me? And he dumped it until there was nothing left and she said it was like he was in a trance like she's like screaming and shrieking it was horrifying for her to watch and he was like absolutely obliterating this thing like and seemed to be getting some sort of joy out of it so oh i love i love the description of it though uh he began to strike it again and again working himself up into a kind of a frenzy as he reduced the writhing creature to an awful oozing pulp yeah it's gross isn't it <laughs> Is it alive? Is it dead? We don't know. We know it will be dead soon if it isn't already. Could just be spasms. Yeah. He was actually given privileges, like field trips. That's how well-behaved they thought of him. And on the outside, his mother was working really hard trying to get him released. She was sending letters to the board of trustees. She was basically his constant stalwart defense and would be for the rest of his life or her life. I also found an article that said she was also striking up affairs with influential police officers to try to get him out early. It seemed like Schechter didn't put much credence into that, but left the door open for it to be possible. But she also, it may have been difficult for her because uh, Schechter also was pretty down on her looks. (laughs) As as bad as uh, Jesse seemed to look, he seemed to have come by some of it honestly. Schechter's like, nobody would fuck her. This is a lie. Essentially, <laughs> kind of seemed to be a little bit pissed, yeah. <laughs> but there was something going on with one police captain that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. That uh, it, it seemed like he was more on the Pomeroy side than w- would be natural for this kind of situation. And he'll factor in. So keep an eye out for that in just a minute. 
So the, the board of trustees actually did send someone to check out Ruth Pomeroy's home, see if it would be an appropriate place for him to be released. And he was like, okay, yeah, so the parents are separated. There's no dad, but she's got a, a dressmaking business right across the street from their home, so she won't be far from the house. And his older brother is, is an industrious little sort. He has a newsstand in the front section of the store, and he does a little paper route, like okay, this seems pretty wholesome. It seems like, you know, with the exception of the absence of the traditional father figure, you know, okay. And so they gave this information to the relevant parties. And when asked about it, the police captain, whose name was Dyer, said, yeah, Jesse should be set free because, quote, it isn't best to be down on a boy too hard or too long. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> Yeah, I knew that was coming. So Epstein. <laughs> I was expecting that. As, as soon as I typed that quote, I was like, oh, God. It's yeah. either going to be Amber or Scott. It's probably going to be both of them. Really just a matter of who says it first. I should start putting bets next to quotes and, and information that I know is going to set you guys off as to who it's going to be. <laughs> Scott, Amber, both. February 1874, after less than one and a half years for torturing small children, and also unbeknownst to said small children or their families or the neighborhood at large, Pomeroy was let out. He was back on the streets. I, I read that like one of the one of the things that they kind of went was, yeah, the mother runs her own dressmaking shop, but his brother Charles also sells newspapers like that actually mattered in the parole his brother charles sells newspapers could you imagine being charles let's sit back for just a second because i identify with charles i thought about that too i'm like this poor kid is trying to be the best human being he can be and he's helping out at the dress shop and he's selling all these papers and he's just trying to be a good person and then his brother is crazy <laughs> yeah yeah. And he's oh, yeah. like, but I'm so good. And mom gives him all the attention because, yeah. And here I am all by myself. Like, I feel like Charles from the age of 10 was just raising himself. I identify so hard with Charles. Yeah, there definitely seemed to be. Ruth Ann was at times hyper focused on Jesse, and Charles seemed to get the short shrift there. And also. <laughs> Jesse took over his brother's neighborhood uh, paper route, his afternoon route. Uh, so it's maybe, you know, I think Charles could have seen that one of two ways. He could have seen it as, you know, okay, well, at least he's helping the family out. Or he could have seen it as, oh, great, here he comes to take something that's mine. Yeah, because Ruth Ann was probably like, he needs something to keep busy. Give him your paper route. You And Charles are. was probably like, yes, let's send him out on the streets. Great idea, Ma. <laughs> Oh, God, it's like I'm Ugh. having flashbacks. <laughs> he he also would help out in the store, too, which figures into uh, some of what happens. So about one month after Jesse Pomeroy's return, on March 18th, there's a neighborhood girl named Katie Curran. She's 10 years old, and she needed a new notebook for school. It was early in the morning, and so she was like, Mom, I got to go get a new notebook. My, I filled mine up, and she, her mom gives her a little bit of money. It's like, go, but you know, be back in time to go to school. So Katie Crayon goes, 
and she checks out one store first, but they didn't have the no the kind of notebook she wanted. So and that would be the worst thing to ever happen to Katie Craft. Yeah. Yes. Let's just stop the story there. And that's the end of our episode. <laughs> no notebook. Travesty. This is this is the biggest crime ever. Your honor, my <laughs> lawyer demands satisfaction. Yeah. And honestly, I feel for her because I too am particular about what I write on and with. So I, I, I get it. Little, little side, little side trip here. Uh, my boss got uh, for for the office got these uh, things called Remarkable Twos, and they live up to their fucking name. It's it's a tablet, but it feels like you're writing on paper. It is fucking lovely. That is neat, and I need to try one. Uh, I'll tell you what. I will borrow it from him. Uh, once COVID is done, because he's even said, take it home with you anytime. Uh, I will borrow it and bring it over sometime. That sounds excellent. I can't wait. Okay, COVID be gone. <laughs> that, I deem it, it so. <laughs> so Katie doesn't get the notebook that she wants at the initial store. So she's like, well, I'll see if they have one at the Pomeroy store. Meanwhile, Jesse was opening the store for business. And she comes in. There is someone with him, a neighborhood boy. And Katie Curran asks him, do you have this kind of notebook? He says, yeah. And I, we do. We have one left. It's got an ink stain on it. So I can even give it to you for a discount. Three cents instead of five. And so her eyes just light up. That's great. I'll have two cents left over for some penny candy or something. And he sends that neighborhood boy off on an errand. And when the boy comes back... There's no sign of Katie Curran. But to that boy's knowledge, like it wouldn't have taken that long for that particular exchange to happen. You know, sell her a notebook and she's gone. Ten minutes, he would have probably expected her to not still be there. So, but definitely not, you know, anything he did. So, her parents did report her missing. And that witness, that neighborhood boy, did say to Mrs. Curran, he's like, yeah, I saw I saw Katie at the Pomeroy store. And Mrs. Curran went and told the cops and they dismissed her. They said, oh, we will search it. And then they supposedly did and came back with absolutely nothing. But um, yeah, so a witness said that they had seen her getting into a buggy. And so that was a trail that the, led the cops to absolutely nowhere. And there were also whispers because her father was Catholic and there was some anti-Catholic uh, stirrings going around at the time that he had kidnapped her himself and shipped her off to a convent and then, you know, reported her missing. You can't trust Catholics. They eat people. <laughs> but no, like that was the thing I kept seeing over and over. Her father was Catholic, but her mother was a Protestant. Oh my God. God. <laughs> I know, right? No. Is this England? What the fuck? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. I would love to see what my ancestors would think of my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, around the neighborhood, there were lots of little boys reporting that an adolescent boy was trying to get them to go off with him. Most of them resisted. One had a close call. The, he had said yes to the adolescent boy. The adolescent boy was taking him away. Another boy saw them and interceded. And this little boy managed to run away. So he managed to um, 
not fall prey to this victimization. And then Horace Millen. He is four years old. His family had really just moved to the neighborhood. They'd been there about two weeks. There was a depression going on, and his father had been looking for some cheaper lodgings because they were really struggling. And so he moved them to this neighborhood, and they lived right across from the Korans. So they saw all this stuff happening with Katie Koran and felt really, really bad for her family. And then on April 22nd, 1874, which is just over a month after the Koran disappearance, little Horace Millen, he seemed to have quite the sweet tooth. So he is bugging his mother to give him some money for, you know, go down to the bakery, get a treat. And so she gives him some coins, a couple pennies, and says, be back by lunchtime. It's around 10 a.m. at this point. Within 15 minutes, uh, one of the people in the neighborhood spotted Horace Millen with an older boy and assumed they were brothers. Soon after that, another person spotted the older boy watching as Horace went into the bakery. He comes out with a drop cake, which I had to do a little Googling, but that's a little cake that's just, it's just batter that's dropped into hot fat or baked in a buttered pan. So there you go. It doesn't seem that complicated. (laughs) And so... This witness saw the bigger boy, when Horace came out with the drop cake, come over, talk to Horace, took the cake from him, split it in half, and gave Horace the other half, and then they both ate their cakes, and then led the little boy away. She also said that the older boy seemed to be watching with a sort of excitement, which is like, eh, ping. Mm. <laughs> that red flag just popped right up. Then another witness saw them a little while later near the wharf. Uh, And again, everyone who saw them just assumed they were brothers. Then around 20 minutes after that sighting, someone saw the older boy alone running away from that area. And they were like, he's running like somebody's chasing him, but there's no one behind him. So he seemed to be running away uh, from something. Later that afternoon, two actual brothers are beachcombing, they found Horace's body at the marsh. He was half naked, covered in blood. The autopsy would later discover he'd been stabbed at least 18 times in the chest, twice in the throat. The ones in the throat may have been the fatal wounds, but with all those wounds, it was kind of hard to tell, especially at the time. Well, they said they said the ones in the throat were so deep, it was practically decapitation. Yeah, it was one of those cases, which always I hate. Yeah. I hate them more than anything. Uh, I I don't have a neck now because my shoulders are up by my ears. So He also <laughs> punctured the boy's right eye through the eyelid. I also hate eye stuff. This I picked this case. Yeah, what the hell is wrong with you? I was listening to the audiobook, and it, when <laughs> Did do that, that make it easier? <laughs> well, it, it does make it easier. Also, you can zone out when this stuff happens. Uh, so, yeah, there's also probably the worst of all, especially for our male listeners. Uh, the groin was mutilated and he was partially castrated. So, and all of this had been done with a small bladed instrument, something like a pocket knife. I'm finding it really hard to make jokes tonight. Understandable. There's just some times when you just can't. Yeah. And that's. I, I think our, our listeners get that and, and maybe respect that, Scott. <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and like 
you know, you you guys do what you need to do. I'm just I'll, I'll pop in with a with a neat factoid every now and then. As soon as I find a pr- place to make even a slightly inappropriate joke, I will. So <laughs> okay, I, all right. I actually I think that one of the the worst facts about this in particular were that um, Little Horace's hands were clenched so tight that his fingernails were embedded into his palms. Yeah, that part got me. That was that was rough. <sighs> I this really is a four-year-old kid. Like I, I took this one to heart because my son is three and a half. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my god. I I couldn't like that is so small. That yeah. is so yeah. small. Like that is a 30-pound kid, a 40-pound kid. Like that is a tiny little baby. Mm-hmm. Unreal. The only like I really when we're doing ones like these that are rough like this, especially with children, I really struggle to find. It can't even qualify as a silver lining. Just maybe a dark gray lining and all the blackness. Um, I when they were the, the the two sightings, one of them together, and then of uh, the, the older boy running alone, were about twenty minutes apart. And I'm like, at least it was only twenty minutes. Jesus, like that's all I've got. That's all I've got. Yeah, I'm like, I'm really, really good at dark humor. I am. Like, we made jokes about our miscarriage. This is like my forte is making inappropriate jokes. And like, there are points in this that I I don't have really any appropriate jokes. Inappropriate jokes. Any inappropriate. That's a lot. Never mind. I quit. (laughs) Okay. I guess it's just me. Also, I'm remembering that night of the the jokes and it was the, the, most the funniest time I've ever been uncomfortable. So uh. <laughs> I still contend that baby was probably going to be really ugly. And, and so God was like, no, kibosh. I'm going to keep going. I love you, Amber. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how I can keep going. <laughs> and it's not even because of the case. It's because of Amber. Yeah. I love You're you welcome. too, Amber. <laughs> So meanwhile, uh, back at home, his mother starts to freak out. She does go eventually and she starts looking around the neighborhood, then goes looking for Horace's father. He's like, oh, you know, it's okay. It's fine. It's just a four-year-old wandering around the city. I know that we have, I know times have even changed since we were younger. You know, like we used to stay at, wander through the woods all day. I can't tell you how many times I got lost in the woods and I probably should just be some like, decaying bones in the woods behind my house at this Me like too. i i'm yeah. very lucky <laughs> like so i, I and yeah we, we wouldn't have to come home until the street lights came on or whatever but like a four-year-old i wasn't, wasn't allowed to wander when i was four i wasn't even allowed to watch nickelodeon i was never allowed to watch nickelodeon as a matter of fact but we didn't have it after i was eight so it didn't matter but anyhow so yeah just the four-year-old thing is just like it just gets me I think, yes, kids did grow up a little bit faster, but still, it's four. It's four. Yeah. A four-year-old is missing for 10 minutes, you should be worried, much less two hours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just super glue my kids down to the floor until they're 82. There you go. That's, that's the answer, really. Yeah. 
Maybe not super glue. That would lead to bed sores, I'm sure. Okay, fun. Hot glue. So, uh, at least other things. So, they did eventually the father came home at 5:30 and he was like oh, okay now i'm worried and so they reported this to police station number 6 now the police who came out to the crime scene were from police station number 9 so the coroner's exam was done and after that they used what i think is the proto fax machine that scott told us about several episodes ago oh my god uh, that finally came back it scott wasn't lying <laughs> The, the patent writing telegraph. That's it. Schechter described it as, quote, using an electromagnetic pen, an officer would write out a message that within seconds was transcribed in facsimile by a matching apparatus on the receiving end. Huh. Facsimile. That's weird. Sounds hmm. almost like <laughs> fax. Interesting. Do you think that's a, do you think that's a coinkadink? <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know if they had the word facsimile then or not, but yes, it was essentially that. Hey, it's Rebecca Lieb. And I'm Jason Horton. And we are Ghost Town, a show about weird history, hauntings, unexplained events, true crime, and all kinds of bizarre phenomenon the world over. From unsolved murders to haunted manors. Satanic panic to internet mysteries. Buy a ticket to our abandoned amusement park. A VIP ghost pass to our haunted club? No. Bottle service. We have new episodes of Ghost Town every Wednesday and Friday, and you can find Ghost Town wherever you get your podcasts. So, yeah, they were able to use this to send out messages to the other precincts that, hey, we've had this murder committed. Do you know, you know, like anything about it? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they could have used this exact same term technology to communicate between precincts that, hey, murderous little bastard who assaulted a bunch of kids in the neighborhood is back. Yeah, that would have been nice yeah. to, to share with people that's weird yeah. i don't see that under his aliases murderous little bastard yeah well, well you also you would only you'd see murderous monstrous youth or uh boy fiend was the favorite one and that was the that was my main issue with the the harold Schechter book was just the the constant like literally the instead of using his name would say the boy fiend and i'm like i'm just i hate that phrase yeah, i hate it i think that's the name of an 80s slasher film that i rented one night the boy fiend yeah. i rented boy that the, i rented that the same night that i rented frankenhooker yeah. Which I would say I wish too, it would have been like something cooler like Pearl Eye Pomeroy. Yeah. Dead eyed dick face or something like that. <laughs> so word got to police station six about the body that had been found, and they recognized the description from the Millens, so they had to go and tell the Millens that, you know, there's a body that's been found, it's probably your son. And at, at this news, the Millens were pretty obviously heartbroken. They were also, here are the, the few little bright spots that you can find. They're also really, uh, again, money's not great during this time period for them. They were pretty indigent. Uh, so many people, unprompted, without any sort of GoFundMe campaign or anything, just sent them money, just sent them a few bucks, you know, in an envelope for here's for, for Horace's funeral. Cause that was one of Mrs. Millen's main thing was how are we going to bury him? We don't have the money. And Mr. Millen's coworkers, and he was new on that job too. 
gave them $50, which is about $1,100 a day. Police Station 6 contributed $150, which is about $3,300 today. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it is about $3,300 today. So they were able to have a, a nice funeral for little Horace, which I'm sure gave them some solace, but certainly doesn't take away their grief. And then this is coming out immediately. I mean, <laughs> the newspapers essentially got the word about this at around the same time that the Millens did. They didn't necessarily know the identification, but they knew that this horrible, brutal murder had occurred and the description of it. And so a lot of red flags are going up for people who had even you know, been involved with the case of the boy torturer or even heard of it. The Boston Globe just went and got straight to it. Quote, the similarity of the crimes is so great that it seems almost a logical conclusion that they are the work of one and the same hand. Almost like they're doing their job better than the police. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Edward Hartwell Savage, the chief of the Boston police, did also ping up on that. He was like, yes, I think that these are both from the same person. But, okay, first of all, I have to tell you, he's actually a pretty impressive guy. Um he had gotten together a dedicated detectives unit. He instituted a rogues gallery kind of system, as well as some more modern record record keeping methods than had been employed prior to his tenure. He was also an amateur historian who put out a history of the department's 240 years. He managed to go his entire tenure as chief without one bank being robbed and during the Great Fire of 1872, he stayed on duty for 96 hours. God damn. Yeah. He's, he's a pretty, on. Yeah. And so he's a very accomplished man. He's a very knowledgeable man. But one piece of knowledge that has not been given to him was that Jesse Pomeroy had been released back into his jurisdiction. That the is a very of- important piece of information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. Luckily, a detective who talked to him that night did know because when Chief Savage was like, this all sounds like that Jesse Pomeroy guy who's in the, the reformatory, the detective was like, um, funny I've thing. Two- <laughs> yeah, I've got two pieces of news for you. One, I agree. And two, he's not. <laughs> I have a in request. Yes. Can we can we from this point forward refer to him as Chief Big Sack? <laughs> Chief Big Sack. I mean, I'm okay with it. It fits. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't really come up very much more, but sure. At least one time. <laughs> so Chief Big Sack, yeah. Uh, he he sent some officers to pick up Jesse Pomeroy. They go to Pomeroy's house and find him. His face is kind of scratched. His pants and his shoes are a little stained. And so they take him down to the station. On his way out the door, he turned back and he said, don't fret, Ma. I didn't do nothing. Wow. Lied to his mother. Now he's really a horrible person. (laughs) Oh, he stole money from his mother. Oh. Yeah, Yeah. I'm really living this shit. (laughs) At the station, he tells them a story about his day that has some holes in it they there's a little bit of time right around the time the murder would have occurred that is unaccounted for 
seems like it's, he's pretty vague when some of the details should be a little bit more specific. There's some significant details that they asked him about, about particular locations that he said he had gone to. He was unable to give them. Like, for instance, he said he had gone to one particular area where there was a lot of uh, construction work going on, like serious construction work. And they were like, was there any construction work going on? And he's like, I don't know. Like, you would have noticed. It was enough that you would have definitely noticed if you had actually been there that day. They take his shoes and they find marsh grass in them. And they also, when they're looking at him, are able to see some more scratches that they hadn't picked up on before at the base of his neck, the back of his hand. And all these scratches seem to be pretty recent. They asked him, do you have a pocket knife? And he says, yes, I do. It's at home. I go, left it, it in the kit. I mean, it's at home. <laughs> yeah. They go to his house. They get it. And they're looking at it. There was some, what could have been mud, blood in, in a couple different places on the handle and then in like the joints. And the next day they go out to the crime scene. They get, all right, so there's, there's shoe prints, boot prints, whatever you want to call them at the scene. And then there's also prints leading up to it. The prints at the scene, they were like, this is a tentative match because they couldn't be 100% because of, other children had been there. Children had discovered the body. So that could just as well have been one of the children that discovered the body. So they needed something that they could say was 100% a match with Pomeroy. So they go and look at the footprints that are leading from the wharf to the marsh. And they actually, pretty smart here, they're like, we should get a cast of these. And one of the detectives is like, oh, there's a stonemason who lives nearby. I'll just run over there, get some plaster of Paris. We can get that done. So they do that. They get a cast and they match up to Pomeroy's boots. Of course they do. He did it. Yes. <laughs> so they go back to the station and later on, uh, Pomeroy would recount this, that he was awakened roughly by a cop yelling, you are guilty and will be shut up for a hundred years. There it is again. Mm -hmm. He's not bright enough to even see when he's repeating himself, which I just. They do try to get a confession. They're not getting very much. So they're like, well, we'll just arrest you. And he's like, well, you don't have any evidence. You don't have me. And they're like, all right, well, why don't we go look at the body? He's a little shook at this point. And so they take him to where the body is. They force him to look. And that's when he essentially confesses. Uh, he replies really just sort of matter-of-factly, I, I suppose I did. Yeah, and then they ask him, well, what did you do it for? And he says, I don't know. Something made me. Take me out of here. I don't want to stay here. Uh, they get back into the carriage after that. They're back on their way to the jail. And he says, I am sorry I did it. Please don't tell my mother. So now they're trying to get some more details. They're like, well, where'd you wash the blood off your knife? Thinking, you know, maybe they can find some blood if you did it at home or wherever. And he says, I didn't wash it. I stuck the blade into the marsh and cleaned it. And someone asked him at one point, what do you think we should do with you? And he said, put me somewhere so I can't do such things. So they get their confession, sort of, but they don't write it down or anything. They just get him admitting to it. And then they're like, well, we're hungry, so we're going to go to lunch. They put him in isolation and they have strict instructions that they don't want anybody in to see him. But here's the thing. The papers already knew, of course, word had gotten around town. And the thing is, is that people are starting to get pissed off. 
that Paul Moran was out and a lot of people didn't know. There's an uproar going on and people are looking and to try to find out, you know, who authorized his release? Why was he let out? And so the people involved in that, they're on, they're, they're heavy into damage control mode. Uh, mainly, a director of the reform school stopped by to visit while the detectives were at lunch. And after that visit, Pomeroy was back to denying he'd done a damn thing at all. And strangely, all the holes in his original story were stitched right up. He was able to describe with very vivid detail all the construction that had been going on in the area where he claimed to have been. And he's, he's, he's really sticking really close to his story. And the person who led in the director of the reform school was Captain Dyer, the one who said that they shouldn't go too long or too hard on Pomeroy. Sigh. I know. That is the one area where I'm like, maybe he was sleeping with Mrs. Pomeroy. Captain, any hole is a good hole, Dyer. But at the same time, <laughs> he had spoken out in favor of Pomeroy being released. So he did have a vested interest with people getting upset. He had as much interest as the reform school director in Pomeroy not being held to account for this murder because it's as much his fault as the other guys that Pomeroy was out on the street. So then the public is like, well, we need to find somebody to blame. So how about books? Let's blame it on books. Dime novels. Those trashy dime novels. Yeah. You read a lot of those. Fucking people that. reading all the goddamn time. It's another one of those, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Yeah, pretty much so. The coroner's jury meets and determines that it is murder, and they judge that they believe it was committed by Pomeroy. He pleads not guilty, is denied bail, and the trial is set for December. The paper always, like I said, it's always boy fiend or moral monster. And they have quite the description here. Sort of an introduction to the article about Jesse Pomeroy. It's, it's something. It's the purplest of purple prose. Nature occasionally indulges in unaccountable freaks. Sometimes it is the animal kingdom which is thus distinguished. Sometimes the vegetable and sometimes the physical. Volcanic eruptions and bald mountain scares are instances of the last-mentioned phenomena, and the Siamese twins and two-headed horses of the first. Instances of vegetable irre irregularity will be readily recalled by the intelligent reader. Gentlemen, Not do you suffer from vegetable irregularity? <laughs> right. One in ten men over the age of 45 does. And not unfrequently, a moral monstrosity is produced. <laughs> One of the most remarkable of these has lately come to the surface in Boston, a boy murderer. And then they go on to uh, Jesse Pomeroy, the son of a respectable parents. Not long since killed a smaller playmore in cold blood. Agreed. Bullshit. Respectable parents, my ass. <laughs> Whenever your mother will give up the brown cherry to get your freedom out of prison and your dad Again. just beats you for what? <laughs> We don't know that first part. We do know the second part. Allegedly. <laughs> there you go. Allegedly. <laughs> Meanwhile, while he's in jail, the the dress shop is not doing well, as you can imagine. Uh, nobody wants to go and buy a dress from the lady whose son uh, allegedly killed a neighborhood boy. Let's let's really focus in on the real victim here, Charles. 
Yes, yes, he loses his little newsstand. Yeah. Probably lost his paper out, too, I imagine. Like, I want to know what happened to Charles. I couldn't find anything about Charles's later life. I don't know anything he about He probably it. changed his goddamn name and got the hell out of there. That's what Ed Kemper's brother did. Yeah, it, it's the smart move, really. He, yeah. he had The name was so famous. I really wouldn't blame him. Although, you know what? I will say this. So upon looking up sources, I did find that there is a Jesse Pomeroy who has actually a quite respectable job on LinkedIn. And I was like, this is not the one I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so the Pom Mrs. Pomeroy, she takes her dress shop out and moves it back into her house because she really can't afford the rent. And the landlord of that building sells it to a neighborhood grocer who's looking to expand. And so he sets to work on some renovations and he starts with the cellar. Now, the workers did notice at first that there was a really awful smell in that cellar. But the new owner was like, well, it's probably just some vermin or something that died in a corner that the basement was basically filled with trash it was an absolute mess so they you know open some windows and do the best they can in you know 1870s boston to get rid of the smell and so they do they're boston doing their work smells now i mean it's <laughs> what chance do we have before like proper sewage i didn't notice a smell you didn't notice the stench of baked beans and and beer everywhere that, that is deliciousness <laughs> yeah that is deliciousness <laughs> absolutely so <sighs> the, around uh, July 18th is when this happens. They, one of the workers sees some fabric kind of uh, in an ash heap. He pulls at it and uh, the, really the worst Jack in the box ever, a child's skull comes tumbling out. Still had some tufts of wavy brown hair stuck to it. Uh, they uh, bring in investigators, more clothing and body parts are found. And now these months had passed. It had been about four months. And Katie Cran's parents had basically settled on what for them they considered the most likely and was also probably the least painful conclusion that Katie had fallen into the water somewhere and drowned. Now they're about to be really have that illusion shattered as horrifying as that is it was about to get worse and the cops really again it's dire again it's fucking captain dire i hate this guy so much so they match the clothes to those that katie coran was said to have been wearing Rather than actually move things to a neutral location, like, the, I don't know, the police station, you have one for some reason, he brings the parents into the cellar. Yeah, no, he has the cops standing around the, the ash heap where the body is, so at least they're, you know, not standing right next to their child's dead body where she was murdered. And he makes them identify various scraps of her clothing that had been found. Is this hers? Was this hers? Was this hers? And it gets so bad that Mrs. Coran just uh, just drops into a faint. And when she comes to, she tries to push past all the cops to get to her daughter's body, which is still in the ash heap. Keep in mind, they haven't even taken the body out. And she's screaming, let me see her. She's begging to be allowed to take Katie's body home. 
and they they take her out of the house on her way out of the house she screams if only she had drowned anything but a death like this oh good lord yeah now this gets the torches and the pitchforks already firmly planted in the neighborhood's hands for good reason <laughs> this gets them going and they actually take Mrs. Pomeroy and Charles Pomeroy into custody first because this, this dead body has been found in the building where they worked and so they're witnesses second of all because they're about to get just completely like lynched burned at a stake something bad is about to happen to them so <laughs> it's, it's, it's first for information and second for protection Jesse denies everything for a while, although there's some pressure on him because his, his mother and his brother are there. I think at one point he said the words, well, I don't think my mother did it. He was, he was really just debating whether or not to throw her under the bus uh, or horse and carriage, as the case may be. Uh, no. <laughs> so, and there are also reports that before Katie Curran's body was even found, he was asking around the jailhouse if there was a reward for finding her. So that's not a guilty look at all. No. Finally, he comes out and confesses and he says, well, I just cut her throat. But the autopsy says differently. He treated her in much the same way that he treated little Horace Millen. There's stabbing and there's mutilation uh, involved. So they try him for Horace Millen's murder. And of course, the defense is going for the insanity angle and everyone brings in experts to contradict each other, basically. <laughs> you know, it's it, it seems to be a lot of trials, both in the past and current. You know, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and so often when I'm listening to stories about trials, I might spend my time just, it's like a tennis match back and forth where I'm like, I believe them. No, I believe them. No, wait, that sounds right. And just back and forth and back and forth. You can practically see my head going back and forth. Jackson just likes to sit there the entire time. And every five minutes or so, he'll just belt out guilty. <laughs> it's what we refer to in the business as true crime tennis. Yes. Although sometimes if a questionable fact, com if a fact comes up that does call into question the most likely suspect's guilt, he'll go not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> So it's fun. <laughs> so uh, the so the, the the trial is basically just constant contradiction, and Jesse Pomeroy is found guilty of murder in the first degree. The jury has a recommendation of mercy, but the judge is like mm, death by hanging. Death right? By hanging. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Now, but there is a ton of hubbub. There's back and forth in the papers. Everybody has an opinion. There's bringing in religion. They're bringing in very rudimentary ideas of psychiatry. Although occasionally they get really like, they come close in their descriptions of what they think he has, what psychiatric disorder he might be suffering from. They come close to fairly modern descriptions, but they don't actually fit the case. Like they, they perf almost perfectly described OCD, but he didn't have OCD, you know, like, like the, the Harold Schechter was like that, you know, while that was a good description, he didn't have it, <laughs> you know, that was never, no psychiatrist actually ever said that or psychologist, but the, the, I was listening to the description. I was like, that is really on target for the 1870s. That is amazing. They're wrong, but it's a really on target. 
wow, if this would have just been another person, they would have been completely correct. Exactly. Yeah, you have letters being sent to the governor with all kinds of opinions. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes throws his uh, his hat into the ring here with his opinion. Regular people write in. One of them included a horrible poem of his own devising, and I won't subject you to that because I wish I hadn't been subjected to it. Thank you. <laughs> I know, right? Me not reading a poem? What would... What is this? What's happening? I don't even know. So, and there were also there once was a murderer from Nantucket. <laughs> there were also petitions, uh, about the same number of petitions for the death penalty as against. Although it seemed like the number of signers, the against death penalty, got quite a few more than the four the death penalty petitions got. So it seemed like, at least as far as getting people to sign a paper, the people who were anti-death penalty for Pomeroy were able to get more signatures. And so it's it's up to the governor at this point, because if the judge has issued a guilty, the, the guilty verdict, sentence hanging, the governor is the one who has to sign the death warrant and he, or give a, a commutation of some sort. So that's where it stands. And he's basically like, his name is Governor Gaston. And no one tries to pass the buck like Gaston. Now, <laughs> now have we had Gaston before? Because the more that I looked at it, uh, the more I went, God, I've seen Governor Gaston someplace in one of the other shows. I It didn't seem too familiar to me, but maybe we did. Okay. I'm just was hoping somebody caught my Beauty and the Beast reference, and then I'll be happy. Yeah, um, nobody <laughs> fights like a song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> they, <laughs> I'm, I'm having a moment. Okay, all right. I'm also figuring out where I am in my notes. So uh, Governor Gaston, he's like, all right, we're gonna have a special hearing, and they have the Attorney General and the defense lawyer. They both make their arguments, and then Gaston's like, well, this hearing didn't help, so why don't we have another hearing? <laughs> That's a solution to everything at this point. So this one, they made a public hearing, and this one, they brought in more of the experts, a lot of whom had testified at the trial and such, and the consensus does seem to be uh, for mercy at this hearing, which was April 13th, 1875. But also those against Mercy seemed pretty convincing with uh, an attorney pointing out that this, if a commutation was given, it wouldn't be the first time Jesse had been given one. And that didn't work out so well for little Horace and little Katie. Gaston was in the middle of trying to get a second term as well. That explains his reticence because with, with his reticence to do anything because with such like a, a huge public division, he couldn't, right. he, one way or the other, he was going to lose some voters. Right, right. And he doesn't know what to do because it's half and half, right? There is literally no right answer for this. And so he refuses to sign it. And that causes him to lose the election. He was defeated by Republican Alexander H. Rice, but then he also refused to sign the execution order. I have a few things that happened in the interim during that because this is all still going on. Like, can you imagine the turmoil with this election going on? Yes. Yes, a matter of fact, I can. 
Yeah. <laughs> and people continue to constantly talk about it. There's discussion in journals. There's there's discussions in the press. Some people, Scott, you're going to love it. Some people were like, I know what to blame. Masturbation. <laughs> no, no. Something tells me. That's what Pomeroy... fucked up his eye. Yeah, yeah, really. Something tells <laughs> me if Pomeroy would have had one off with the wrist, probably there would be two people that are still alive now. What do you what? want? What do you want? Some guy in a bathroom with a copy of like Hustler stroking it off? Or do you want some guy up on the top of a roof with a sniper rifle, a copy of guns and ammo and an erection he can't get rid of? You know what, though? I really wish he would have gone the Highlander route and just found out about like choking himself while masturbating. Oh, yeah. And none of this would have ever happened. Yeah. Autoerotic asphyxiation. That's the way that's the way Bill from Kill Bill died. Well, one one psychologist did, uh, insisted that it was all about masturbation. He met Jesse Pomeroy once and said that the case showed, quote, many of the characteristics of mania from masturbation, conceit, and love of notoriety are especially prominent. In my head, I'm like, I walked in with a paper cut and he got a woody immediately. <laughs> <laughs> This same psychologist, I should say, didn't say it was just masturbation. He also blamed it on the dime novels. I, of course. I love the fact, whenever I was a teenager, like I always thought, man, masturbation's great and all, but I can't wait until I have a girlfriend or like whenever I'm married, I'll never masturbate again. And you know what? I still do it. Masturbation's great. It is. There are honestly nights where I'm like, I really hope Marcus just sleeps on the couch because I want to rub one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it's all the joys of sex without having to please anybody else. Sometimes I can just leave things out of the notes is what I'm realizing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to include everything. Let's talk about double clicking our mouse. <laughs> White so, water wristing. Gethon is still in uh, seated as governor. And finally, the debate is going on so much that he has to do something. So he has he pulls in his executive council because, again, no one passes the buck like Gaston. <laughs> and they, uh -huh. <laughs> after four hours of debate, they vote five to four in favor of death. So now it's left and it was really in his hands because now there's no possibility of him offering a commutation with the council having voted. So and he has so to eat with those hands. Warrant. Yes, he does. So meanwhile, all this is going on and Jesse's in jail. And this was something that um, I'm going to admit that I didn't quite finish the audiobook because I got to the point where Jesse Pomeroy was in jail and one of his comrades from school ended up in the same jail. So they're sending letters back and forth. We don't have his comrades letters. We do have many of Jesse's. And the content of the letters combined with the tone of the narrator, who did a fine job, but I was just uncomfortable. Be that combined with the fact that the, the, the friend's name was... <sighs> Are you guys ready? Wow, this mm -hmm. must be really bad. Willie Baxter. Eh. There we go. I know. Does anybody know that my know. last name is Baxter? Are we aware? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're aware. Then you add Willie, and it's just um, it's it, it gets it's levels of discomfort combined with the content. Okay, so here's from one letter. I'm gonna go ahead and read this, and I'm not gonna do it in a creepy voice like the narrator did. Will you be able to help it? 
Uh, maybe not because the content's pretty creepy. So yeah, I don't. I, I think that the psychologist who tried to pinpoint masturbation as a, a mania was wrong. He had a mania for flogging, and it was really apparent in these letters. Really apparent. Now you will please reply to the question I wrote in my le last letter of last night. You are a good-looking fellow and look as though you could not do wrong or ever get punished. Do you get a licking very often? I never used too much. Tell me if you do, and tell me of the hardest whipping you ever got. Tell me all the particulars of it, and I will tell you of the hardest flogging I ever got. Do not forget to tell me, for if we are to be friends in here, we ought to tell each other everything about ourselves. Will you tell me, as I ask you about the hardest whipping you ever got, if it hurt much, and how it was done to you, and I will tell you about the hardest one I got. Also tell me all you have heard about my doing to those boys on Powder Hill and Railroad. Write me a long letter. I tell you what, you just... you. <laughs> no, don't make it worse. It was already bad. <laughs> Again, I didn't finish a book, Scott. Do you know what that... That... It's like the second time in history. <laughs> yep, that pains her. Physically pains her. <laughs> almost pain. as much as a flogging. <laughs> that is an intellectual flogging for me. Tell me intellectual about intellectual flogging is definitely the subtitle of this episode. Tell me about the, the book that you quit earliest on, and I'll tell you about the book I quit earliest on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. Thank you. You managed to make it funny, but also not make me need more therapy. <laughs> oh no. Well, I'll I'll He's just not have, done yet. Oh, I'm not done. <laughs> Don't encourage him. He doesn't need it. He never has. Know, but that's what I'm here for. Oh fuck! I was. Did we mention I, it's been one year of Amber encouraging Scott's worst impulses? It has. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the day that we're recording is the one year anniversary of my debut as a co-host. Yes, it is. So happy one year anniversary of uh, making my nightmares worse. I guess. <laughs> Let's talk some more about vlogging. I was reading the world according to Dave Barry, and my dad picked up the book. As I was halfway through and beat the hell out of my ass. <laughs> That's. I'm done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how Dave Perry got in there, but okay. <laughs> so, Was that the book you didn't finish? That's the book I didn't finish because my dad. <laughs> my dad. My dad ripped it out of my hands and beat the hell out of me with it. <laughs> Be sure to check out my fans' Instagram and, and donate to my OnlyFans. So, all this is going on, and again, Governor Gaston won't sign the warrant. Like Scott said, he loses the election. New governor comes. He won't sign it. So finally, they're like, something has to be done of this. And in August of 1876, they have another vote of the Executive Council. This one goes the opposite way commutes the sentence to life in solitary confinement. Pomeroy. Doesn't that sound nice, Amber? The rest of your life <laughs> alone. <laughs> Sounds it's fucking great. Lots of masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> so he spent the next 16 years in a 10 by 8 by 8 cell in Charlestown. His mother was allowed to visit, and she did... Absolutely. She was so faithful with her visits right up until her death in 1914. Every single month, every year, she was there. I don't think that's as commendable because poor Charles. Uh, so 
he was a he'd already read a bunch of dime novels. He was a voracious reader. He did go through the entire prison library of eight thousand books, and he finished every one of them. <laughs> Masturbated on every tenth page. Probably uh, learned many languages and like just learned a lot about a lot. He did have a couple of escape attempts. Um, in the most notable one, he broke a gas pipe and lit a match, but really all he did was just lose some eyebrows. <laughs> that was basically it. Not very competent at the escaping. Uh, but he did petition for a pardon every year, and every year it was denied. Twelve governors in a row. One after the other after the other. Denied, denied, and denied. And in 1914, he was in his mid-60s when they let him out of solitary. So think about that. He, he had been in solitary. For, wow. Um, he did some writing. 53 years is what I had in my notes. Fucking sounds great. That's his total, I think, in jail. Total, like, behind bars and everything. Uh, solitary, I think, was a little bit less than that. I think it was about 20 years less than that. I think he was... I think he was in solitary for about 30 years, but still, that's a long ass time. Well, I actually, I do have in my notes that as, as for particularly the solitary confinement, he spent uh, the second longest stretch. Wow. Um, second only to Birdman of Alcatraz. Wow. Huh. Okay. While he was in jail, he did some writing, including an autobiography that insisted on his innocence. And he also put out a compilation of poems and stories that he got some help from old friends from school to get out in, into the public. So that's mm. interesting. He would, uh, in the 20s, he was still in prison. At that point, at some point, he gained the distinction of being the oldest prisoner in the state. Uh, one of his businesses would to be to sell pictures of himself for a buck fifty, which was, in 1920 was $20. He also sold war bonds in World War One, And in the mid-20s, he started stock speculation from behind bars. Apparently, you could do that. What? He. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. weird. And then the Depression yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, it was all for naught, but... He at one point sued a woman who had written to a paper accusing him of am animal cruelty. That was a big rumor that went around about him through the time that he was in prison, that he would like eat rats in his cell or do horrible things to them. So, but it, it didn't seem to be true. He did win the case, even though he wasn't allowed to go testify and he got a whopping $1 in damages. Nice. Before so. Ozzy and the bat. There was yeah. Jesse and the rat. I don't know if you Not fellas a... know this, but uh, the rat is nature's fleshlight. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> really making up for not being able to uh, make sick jokes earlier, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, oh. yeah, I am. Yeah, you are. You really are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> so... In 1929, he was transferred to a prison farm... This was his first time out in uh, 53 years. He saw a completely different world than the one that had existed when he went in. There, where once had been horses and, and buggies and carriages, there were now cars and elevated trains 
And he, in, in this little, they made it a little bit of a field trip. He saw a plane taking off. He had some ginger ale, stuff that, you know, hadn't existed when he was first put in. And this was really his first ride in a car as well, his first real ride. And in jail at the prison farm, he did try another escape attempt, but he was caught basically at the point that he was packing. <laughs> like they were like, he was packing so slow that they were like, is he packing to go somewhere, do you think? <laughs> Maybe we'll head this off at the pass. Hmm. Yeah, everyone just kind of chuckled at it. At age 72, in 1932, he died. Uh, he had spent the vast, vast majority of his life behind bars of some kind. Reformatory, solitary confinement, prison farm. He had been locked up for a total of 59 years. He left behind, from all his stock speculation again, like Scott said, depression happened, $191, which would be $3,600 today. And I have a couple things about uh, people who have long sentences, but Amber, I think, is going to tell us about Charles. Please, please say things good happened, Charles. I am. I do want to add real fast, though, um, the gas explosion... This mm -hmm. is what I had in my notes because it made me fucking laugh. So he he did trigger a gas explosion. He was hoping it would blow open the door to his cell. Uh, the door did, in fact, break open, but it also knocked him silly. <laughs> and he didn't get any further than that. <laughs> oh, excellent. So that made me laugh. So I just wanted to include that. <laughs> um, now, as for Charles... Charles was uh, married twice. It looks like the, his first wife, Inez, passed away at the age of like 23. Mm -hmm. It's okay, though, because um, judging by... Some Not of the for Inez. Well, it seems like she may have died during childbirth. Ah. It's, it's unclear, but that's really what it seemed like because I did find another article about infant Pomeroy at about the same time. Um, so, uh, about three years after Inez passed, he did get married again to Emma Field. They ended up having children. So Charles ended up with three children that all lived well past him. They moved out to Los Angeles. They seemed to have a pretty decent life. Um, I did find a little clipping of Charles's, um, obituary. And uh, he was a manager of the Warren Hotel and Dining Room in the old Union Passenger Station. He died in California June 25th, according to a letter received. Oh, that's fantastic. He moved all the way from Boston to California. Yeah, that's nice. Good for him. Yeah, Seems he like he had a good life. Yeah. He didn't live very long, but back in this time, I mean, 60 is a pretty... Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah pretty decent age yeah so he did okay he really did charles buddy if you can hear me i, I feel you bro i'm gonna i'm gonna pour out a little bit of kool-aid for you tonight scott did you have did you have any more on jesse pomeroy before i get to something semi-related <laughs> uh no no i'm good oh. well the the only thing that i really have and this is tangential uh, I did listen to the Time Suck podcast about Pomeroy, uh, episode 194. Uh, the Killer Kids uh, briefly mentions the Jesse Pomeroy case. But 
Serial Killers podcast, episode 169 and 170, was about, uh, about Pomeroy. They called him the boy torturer. There is no two words you can put together that's more difficult to say for me than boy torturer. Try saying that quickly, boy torturer. Boy, boy torturer. torturer. Yeah, no, that does, it doesn't mesh well, yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. No, it doesn't. So don't call him that. Don't call him the boyfriend either. How about <laughs> torturer? No, that torturer is just really hard to say fast. Right. Torturer is a rough word. Yeah. yeah. Like the, uh, the preteen sadist. There you go. There you go. I prefer Amber, that. you had an O moment that sounded like you I might did. have had something else. So I actually, I just wanted to include this real fast. So Madame Tassad's Chamber of Horrors had a special gallery featuring Jesse Pomeroy since his name was synonymous with evil. <laughs> Excellent. I have, so you might wonder, Pomeroy was in jail for a long time, 59 years. So, okay, who, you know, are there people who have been behind bars for longer? Well, yes, there are. I have a little bit of information about them. So. Longest sentence not currently ongoing. That goes to Paul Guidel Jr. He was in for 68 years and 245 days. Initially, he got 20 years for second degree murder. That turned in to him being declared legally insane. And he was put in a couple different asylums, some of them pretty easygoing. So it didn't seem like it was a really hard stint, but he pretty much stayed behind, you know, stayed in locked up for the rest of his life in one way or the other. Then Francis Clifford Smith beats him at 70 years and 240 days behind bars. He actually was sentenced to death. That was commuted with just a few hours left to go before he was going to be executed. It was changed to life imprisonment. He is still alive and in 2020 was moved to a nursing home. Finally, longest sentence in the world, I think. Australia gets that honor. Can you believe it's not us, guys? It's a little hard to believe. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, Charles Fossard, uh, he beats Francis Smith by just 61 days. He was in for 70 years and 303 days from 1909 I'm sorry, 1903 to 1984. Although, if we consider Smith's sentence ongoing, even in the nursing home, and he's still alive, if the Wikipedia list of these was up to date, then Smith, which I, I kind of doubt because you, it would have to be some sort of like updating itself thing. Nobody's going to that thing and updating it every day. You know how many days <laughs> they've been behind bars. Uh, Smith only needs to live another 61 days to reach the top spot, but that's a lot of ifs. So I think that uh, I think that Charles Fassard really uh, takes the top spot. So way to go, Australia! Nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> you beat us at something we thought we were good at, and that's having many oh. people behind bars for long periods of time. No, no, come well, on, come on. In Let's, fairness, yeah, we're fairness, really good at it. Still, we we are, but we also well, not we, but. Criminals were sent to Australia, which is maybe the reason that they're beating us is because they're they've been doing it for longer. That is true. That is true. So yeah, 
she's not she's not saying I'm just saying to our audience she's not saying that Charles Fassard was like one of the original criminals sent there although time period I don't know eight, I think it was mainly 1800s wasn't it they were shipping them off to Australia I, I want to say that but I was also um, not a kid that went to class in high school <laughs> Man, if only that I've had you researching serial killers. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could tell you firsthand about Juvie because I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Now, how long did Manson spend behind bars? Because he was there for a while. Uh, I'm looking that up right now. He. Former. There's... Oh, I found this out this week too. Former Point Pleasant, West Virginia resident Charles Manson. Lived there as a kid, yeah. Maybe that's where Mothman went. He was living inside the Manson. Yeah. Well, his third imprisonment uh, was 19... Sorry, it was somewhere. Hang on. In prison. All right, so somebody else do the math on this, okay? Uh, 32. First, are you saying that for sure, or are you just guessing? No, I looked up the dates. And okay, I, I was the <laughs> guess. Not. How am I supposed to know? If I was going to guess, I thought he was being an asshole. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> there you go. All right. So 32 years. So yeah, he doesn't. He he needed to, to be behind bars for another 30 or so to even catch up to uh, to Jesse Pomeroy. Yeah. So uh, that is Jesse Pomeroy, and if you are a big fan and like this podcast. I don't, I, I have such a hard time saying if you enjoyed that after we just talked about some of the things we talked about. Children died. <laughs> Did you like that? You sick bastard. Exactly. It's hard for me to say that if you were educated and edified by this uh, again, there's our Patreon that I mentioned. There's also a couple of other ways you can help us out. One of them is reviews on Apple podcast slash iTunes you can go over there, leave us a five-star review. It helps us out. Do it for all the podcasts you like. Honestly, it's not just for us. It's for all of our friends in podcasting. We're all, you know, working hard here and putting something out for you to enjoy. And you should let everybody know. I'm, I'm going to make an, another list of newer podcasts that I've been listening to and go and spend like 10 or 15 minutes just reviewing them this week. So I, I, I encourage everybody to do that. But really, you should Patreon just for us because we're amazing and all of our best stuff is only for the Patreons. We will in no way use your money to buy hookers and drugs. <laughs> they're, they're really good at advertising, aren't they, guys? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, there's also the Patreon. If you don't want to do the long-term thing, which Patreon's not even long-term. It's month by month. So there you go. If you ever want to drop out, you can do that. No harm, no foul. But there's also PayPal. You can PayPal us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. A buck, two bucks. Every little bit counts. Honestly, I'm going to start a fund to get us a newspapers.com subscription. I want it. I want it bad, guys. But I can't justify it right now. <laughs> so if you help us out with that, we can have access to even more material to bring you the most in-depth research possible that really gets at the sources from the actual time period. And that's as unreliable as it can sometimes be is also the most reliable because it's of the moment and hasn't been warped by time and opinions. So there's that. And... There's also our merch at oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. You can go and get a t-shirt, a shower curtain, a laptop sleeve, coasters. There's all kinds of shit you can get. So go and take a look at that. 
If you have any things that you want made into merch, send us an email at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com or hit us up on our social media where you can also find content related to the cases we cover each week. That is oldtimeycrimey on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also tell a friend. Tell a friend about us. You know you want to. You know they'll love us. If they're, they're, they're your friends, they, they must be like us because you're like us. So do it. There we go. Uh, that is all too my- much like us. <laughs> for your sake um, so that is all my bullshit and now normally I would ask what we're doing this weekend but we have switched recording nights we are now recording on Sundays so we only have an hour and 45 minutes left of the weekend so what are you guys doing this week? getting drunk oh there sorry I thought I thought you were going for weekend I have an hour and 45 minutes left to chug yeah. well I have uh, I have two bottles of champagne ready for, for Wednesday which is inauguration day so Oh, we just have to make it to Wednesday. <laughs> so we made it this far. <laughs> I should go to the liquor store because I think I'm going to need it. I have a feeling you might. And yes, that's a good idea. Yes. So, we, so yeah, that's. I also have therapy that day, which is going to be kind of weird. You should I reschedule. Yeah. I, yeah, go I, for I, Thursday. That's whenever we really might need it. <laughs> I get I get anxiety about rescheduling therapy. I I feel like she's sh- the last person that should judge me and is the first person who would and will understand, but I still get real anxious about it. <laughs> like maybe that's something I can talk about in therapy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Start there. Yeah. The first <laughs> step is admitting you have a problem, Christy. Yeah, right. Oh god, I've got Charles Manson's Wikipedia page up and he's just staring with those creepy ass eyes, so that has to go away. Put Rasputin oh, and- up there, you can bookend it. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a menage a trois with Charles Manson and Grigory Rasputin. Oh, I bet that would go lovely. Alright, what else are you doing this weekend? Scott, what are you doing this week? Week, I'm so used to weekend. Yeah. What are we doing this week? I'm just doing a lot of 3D printing, quite honestly. Oh, it, which is, it, it's kind of nice. It's a great little thing. Uh, I am sitting next to like my latest project that I'm doing, but I have, I have three 3D printers, and it's kind of neat. I can just put stuff on it, and then walk away from it, and live my fucking life, and then come back and, oh look, new stuff. There you go, nice. I still need to get uh, the death whistle to Amber. I am yes, so sorry. Yes, I need my death whistle. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I printed, printed Amber out an Aztec death whistle, so I still need to get that to her. I do, and I'm, I'm actually going to use it while working and be like, I don't know what that sound is. Must be a problem with the phones. <laughs> so, Christy, what are you doing this week? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to therapy and uh, doing lots of research on uh, murderers, which maybe is part of the reason I'm in therapy. No, I really, so. I feel like it's more of me and Scott yeah. and murder. Can you imagine how much... How much Christy's therapist has heard about us. She did say when she listened, she was like, I could almost hear when Scott started telling a story. I could almost hear you like leaning back and crossing your arms. And I'm like, yeah, kind of exactly that's what I so do. That's so fucking true. Yeah. <laughs> she yep. was like, I could hear it. She, she was like, you weren't annoyed or anything. You were just like, well, here we go. <laughs> no, there are so many times that I start talking and I, I can feel Christy put her head in her hands. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't, though. I don't. I do cross my arms. 
but that's just because I know that sometimes, you know, like we, we take a little while to get there and I can lean back and relax a little bit. I don't have to be sitting all up straight and have my notes right there. I can just kind of like, but there, yes, there is the crossing of the arms. I thought it was a okay. self-soothing thing. I thought it was like, you know, this crossing my arms and rocking back and forth, maybe hitting my head against the wall a few times. I need to hug myself to, to fend off the bad vibes coming from them. <laughs> All right. Well, while these two continue to pay my therapist's next European retreat, <laughs> we hope that you enjoyed listening to our filthy words. And we will see you next week with more historical true crime because the good old days weren't always so good. Bye. 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 My sources this week are Harold Schechter, the book Fiend, the shocking true story of America's youngest serial killer. Jason Lucky Morrow on Historical Crime Detective, New England Historical Society, the Wilmington Daily Commercial, accessed via Chronicling America Project, Wikipedia, and John Marr on gizmodo.com. My sources are wikipedia.org, newenglandhistoricalsociety.com, historicalcrimedetective.com, murderpedia, and findagrave.com. My sources this week are thelineup.com by Stephanie Al... Almazan, sorry I murdered that, Medium.com by Ryan Fan, CBSNews.com by Roseanne Montillo, New England Historical Society.com, Historical Crime Detective.com, and Murderpedia.org.